0: Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament should be pretty easy to find. Uh, Particularly today, it's important that you have that. Uh, Typically, we have uh, most of the text on the screen. Today, we're not going to. I'd like for you to get into your Bible and uh, turn with me to John. And uh, we'll begin with chapter 11. We'll work our way through uh, three passages in the Gospel of John. So we'll be in John chapter 11, John chapter 14, and then John chapter 15. Pretty easy to find. Uh, So as you're flipping there, uh, I hope you all had a Merry Christmas and I hope we'll have a happy new year and uh, glad that you're here this morning. We are wrapping up our uh, Christmas time series called Baby Names. We've been exploring uh, names of Jesus, both in the Old and the New Testament. And uh, last week, we began to look at the names of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And uh, we saw the first four names of uh, Jesus in the Gospel of John. Uh, And they were found in what we call the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the way and the truth and the life. And so today we're going to wrap it up uh, by taking a look at our final three. I trust you're there in John chapter 11. Uh, So let's pray and we'll dive right in. So let's pray together one more time. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you that we can sit under your word. Uh, Jesus in particular, we're very grateful that we can look at these wonderful statements as you declare to us who you are and who you want to be for us. Thank you that you have uh, declared to us Uh, that you are the light of the world, that you illuminate our spiritual darkness and that you draw us to you uh, to give us light and to give us life. Thank you that you are the bread of life, that you and you alone satisfy the deep spiritual urges of our hearts. Uh, We need satisfaction and it's found in you and you alone. So thank you for that. Jesus, thank you that you have revealed to us that you are uh, so many things. And today, in particular, we find out that you are the resurrection and the life, that you are the way and the truth and the life, and that you are the true vine, and you have given us so many blessings for those of us who have come to believe that you are uh, the Christ, the Son of God, uh, the Savior of the world, and our Lord. And so would you continue to teach us about who you are and about how you want us to live in response to who you are. We pray it in your name, the name above every name, the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. I would like to begin with a story. Uh, this past week, uh, I celebrated Christmas time with my wife's family. And so we drove to northern Arkansas, to a little town called Harrison, Arkansas. And there we met uh, my sister in law and uh, her lovely family. And we've got uh, a niece. And a nephew. The, the nephew is the oldest. He's about nine years old. And our niece is probably about seven years old, maybe six years old. And we enjoy them quite a bit. One of the things that uh, they do at Christmas time, and one of the things that we do as a, a Christmas tradition, is at some point on Christmas Day, whether before we open presents or after we open presents, or sometime on Christmas Day, we read the Christmas story. I don't know if that's something that you do. Uh, I'd encourage you to do it because I think it, it kind of helps us focus on the reason for the season, so to speak. And so uh, we opened gifts that morning, and it was a mad rush, and everybody had fun, and the kids were going left and right and going crazy over their gifts. And uh, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law had to leave to visit their other family. So we didn't get to read the Christmas story until that evening. And so they came back from their family's house, and uh, my sister-in-law... Her name is Shauna. She said, okay, kids, we, we really need to, to read the Christmas story. So let's gather in the living room, everybody, all the kids and all the adults. Let's gather in the living room. and Let's read the, the Christmas story. And my wife, being uh, the creative one that she is, she said, hey, kids, why don't we act out the Christmas story? That would be fun. And my niece, whose name is Liani, uh, she said, yeah, that would be fun. Let's act out the Christmas story. I- I'll be merry. And her brother, whose name is Garrett, then piped in immediately and said, oh, great, I'll be Santa Claus, <laughs> to which my, uh, my aunt, uh, uh, my sister-in-law, uh, Aunt Shauna said, well, th- that's not the Christmas story we're talking about, <laughs> and he said, oh, I-, I thought you were talking about the night before Christmas, that, that Christmas story, and uh, she said, no, we're talking about the Christmas story that involves Jesus. Um, You know, I hope that you were able to remember and focus on Jesus during this this Christmas season. Uh, I hope that you had your Christmas story right, so to speak. Uh, One of the reasons we've been going through the names of Jesus during this time of year is because we want to do that. We want to get the Christmas story right right, right? We want it to be about Jesus. And, and so uh, hopefully we've been doing that. Uh, we've looked at four of the names of Jesus from the Gospel of John, and uh, today we're going to look at the final three. I want to sh- uh, show a quick chart here just by way of summary and review. Uh, the first uh, two names show us uh, the prerequisites of salvation. That is, the first two names, Jesus has said, I'm the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And he's trying to show us that we have a need for him, Right? Uh, the last two names that we looked at last week, Jesus as the gate and the good shepherd, uh, indicate to us that Jesus not only tells us that we need him, but he actually provides a way to him. He actually provides the salvation. That is, he is the gate. He is the, the way into God's sheepfold, if you will. And he is the good shepherd. He is the one who lays down his life. He dies for the sins of his people so that we can go to heaven, so that we can have a relationship with God. What we're going to look at today Uh, is what I would call the uh, product of salvation. That is, once we do that, once we come to Jesus and we realize that he is the light of the world, that we're walking in spiritual darkness, once we do that and we realize that he's the bread of life, and he and he alone can meet this deep spiritual hunger for significance and satisfaction, once we realize that, and then once we come to understand that Jesus uh, is the gate, that he is the only way to heaven, that he is the only way to become one of God's people, and that he himself dies for our sins, that he dies in our place, and we personally receive his death for our sins in our place. What happens to us? What benefits are there? What blessings? What consequences? What results are there? Well, what we find out as we work our way through the Gospel of John is that these last three I am statements talk about the product of that salvation that we have. So in other words, if you're a Christian this morning, what blessings do you have? What is Jesus to you in the here and in the now as you live your Christian life? What blessings come your way? Well, we're going to see three of them. So let's begin in John chapter 11. I trust that you're there. And uh, we'll start reading in verse 17. There in John 11, verse 17 through 27, we find out that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's the resurrection and the life. And this indicates to us that Jesus is our hope in death. That Jesus is our hope when we come uh, to death. He is the resurrection and the life. You've heard the saying, I'm sure, there are two inescapable facts in life. Right? Two inescapable facts in life. What are they? Death and what? Death and taxes, right? Well, I kind of heard an additional comment on this, and I liked it. John uh, John Welsh added, added, added something to that, and he said this. He said, maybe death and taxes are inevitable, but death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. <laughs> I thought that was helpful. You know... Uh, Death is inevitable, right? It's, it's inevitable, inevitable for us, it's inevitable for me, it's inevitable for our loved ones. So the hope then, uh, the question then that we have to ask ourselves, rather, is what is our hope? What is our hope when we faith, face death personally? Or, or what is our hope when those whom we dearly love face death? Well, we find out that Jesus has hope for us. He is our hope in death, and we see that. In his statement, I am the resurrection and the life, starting in John chapter 11. There in John chapter 11, just to give a little bit of a context, Jesus is making his way to the home of uh, three people whom he loved, three people whom he was close with, Mary and her sister Martha, and their brother Lazarus. And we pick it up in verse 17, Lazarus has died. Uh, He's been dead uh, uh, some days now. And we find that Jesus, having delayed his coming, now comes and he meets, he meets uh, Mary on the road. So let's begin reading a verse, uh, Martha on the road, excuse me, verse uh, 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Pretty typical from what we know of them, right? Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Literally, he says, Your brother will rise. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? To which she replies in verse 27, Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. So what we see here is that Jesus uh, comes to comfort them. He's coming to and uh, we see that Martha comes out, and I don't think uh, that her response was one of doubt. I don't think she was doubting Jesus. I think she was affirming her faith in him. I think she was saying, if you had been here, you have the power, as the Messiah and the Son of God, to prevent death, right? That's where she's at. She's affirming her faith in him, right? And Jesus responds to her, literally, she said, he says, your brother will rise. Now, what did, what did she hear in that? She heard an affirmation of the resurrection on the last day. And you see that in her response in verse 24. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And I think certainly Jesus was referring to that. Uh, Lazarus, in the resurrection, at the end of time, would be resurrected. But he meant something more than that. Because he said, literally, your brother will rise not only then, but I have the power within me to bring about a resurrection from the dead. He wants to, to point her away from that in time and towards himself as the one who has the power over death. He points her to himself as her hope in the midst of death. In that paradoxical statement that we see in verse twenty-five. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. That paradoxical statement of Jesus simply means that death is not the final word for believers. His, he's, he's simply affirming that death is not the final word. If we believe in him, our spirit at the point of death is ushered into the presence of Jesus. And one day, as, Mary, uh, as Martha affirmed, one day we will be literally, literally resurrected from the dead. Our spirits will you, unite with our resurrected body. But he points her to himself. He says, listen, you're grieving. It's a difficult time. You've lost one who is very dear to you. So where, do, where, where should she find hope in that point? Well, she, Jesus says, you, you find hope in me because I am the resurrection and the life. I am your hope in the midst of death. Uh, I found that the uh, epitaph of uh, Ben Franklin, of course, we all know who Ben Franklin is. Interestingly enough, this is what he has written on his uh, epitaph. And, and I think it's, it points us to this reality of the resurrection for those who believe in Jesus. He says, the body of uh, B. Franklin, printer. Like the cover of of an old book, its contents worn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding lies here, food for worms, for it will be as he believed, appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, corrected and improved by the author." And so here, even Ben Franklin, facing death, he recognized that the hope when we face death is the fact of the resurrection. And for those of us who believe in Jesus, our hope as we face death, or as our loved ones face death, is in the power of Jesus to raise us and to raise them from the dead. So I want to ask you a hard and personal question. Where is your hope in death? Where is the hope that you have when death knocks, maybe it's for those whom you love. Maybe it's for those whom you are close to. Maybe it's a relative. Maybe it's a, 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 a child. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a sister or a brother. Maybe it's a, a mother or a father, and they are at death's door. Where, where is the hope in that? Where is the hope when maybe it's you? Maybe you find yourself aging. Maybe you find yourself increasingly ill, increasingly sick, and you know that your time has come. In those moments, where is the hope? What Jesus says is, I am the resurrection and the life. I alone can provide hope in death because death is not permanent for those who believe in Jesus. There will be a resurrection. There will be a new physical body that will be perfect, that will be sinless, that will be without temptation, and that will love God for all eternity without death and pain and sorrow. Church, Jesus wants us to know that we can have hope in death, whether it's our own or those of our loved ones. And that is a wonderful blessing for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who love Jesus, for those of us who, who know him. We can have hope, even in the most dire and difficult of circumstances. So in chapter 11, he, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. You can have hope in death. And if you move forward just a few chapters to John chapter 14, we find out that not only can we have hope in death, but we can have the certainty of heaven. So let's move ahead now to John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, there we find out that Jesus is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And in that, I am, he wants us to know not only can we have hope in death, but we can have certainty of heaven because he is the way to heaven. So I trust you're there, John chapter 14. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 in that little wonderful little passage. Uh, oftentimes, I, I think, when we think about these matters, when we think about death, when we think about heaven, I think uh, they can be kind of weighty matters. But I think oftentimes when we ask children what they perceive about it, what their ideas about heaven and about death are, it can kind of lighten the mood and, and be at least a little bit interesting. And so there were uh, several children that were asked about the idea of heaven. And uh, this is what they said. Aaron, age 8, said this. He said, the hospital is the place where people go on their way to heaven. Raymond, chapter, uh, age 10 says this A good doctor can help you so you won't die. A bad doctor sends you to heaven. <laughs> Marsha, age 9, says this When you die, you don't have to do homework in heaven unless your teacher is there too, <laughs> which we hope that the teachers are. <laughs> uh, and uh, wrapping it up, this is my favorite. Kevin, age 10. Uh, He says this. He says, I'm not afraid to die because I'm a Boy Scout. (laughs) So, how can we be certain of heaven? How can we have the certainty of heaven? Is it knowing that we're a Boy Scout? Is that what it is that gives us certainty of heaven? Well, I think here in John chapter 14, Jesus tells us, how we can be certain of heaven, and it's because he is the way and the truth and the life. There in that chapter, Jesus, to give a bit of context, he's comforting his disciples. This is in the section in John known as the Upper Room Discourse, and it's about three or four chapters long, and Jesus is having this significant and weighty conversation there uh, in the Upper Room on the night of his betrayal, on the evening before he is put to death, and he is having serious conversation with his disciples, uh, then 11 disciples, Judas has left uh, the building, and Jesus is telling them things that are disturbing them. They don't understand what he's talking about. He's been talking about going away. He's telling them that I have to go away, and, and where I'm going to go, you can't follow me. Now just think about that. What have they been doing for the past three years? They've been following him, right? Everywhere he goes, Every city that he's going to, they're doing the things that he's doing. They've been with him, and now he's telling them, listen, I'm going away, and you can't go with me. That's, that's really disturbing to them. It's, it's a confusing time here in John chapter 14. So he's comforting them, and he's telling them in a way where he's going. And let's read the words then in John 14, verses 1 through 6. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms... If that were not so, would I I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. So what is he saying here? He's saying, don't... Don't be don't be afraid don't be troubled you believe in God believe also in me and he he speaks of his father's house he speaks of his father's house now what does that mean they apparently don't understand this location but he's speaking of heaven he's saying i'm going to my father's house and I'm going to, to prepare a place for you. And if, if, if I weren't, I wouldn't have told you, right? So he's saying, I'm going away. I'm going to heaven, although they don't quite get it. And I'm going to prepare a place for you there. And if I prepare a place for you there, then I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to be with me. So he's saying, I'm leaving now. You can't go with me now, but later you can, right? He's, he's comforting them. And then in verse 4, he says, you know the way to the place where I'm going, so put yourself in the shoes of, of those disciples. What would you say if you didn't know what he was talking about? What is, wh- where is the father's house? Where is he going? Is it in this city? Is it in Jerusalem? Is it in Samaria in the north? Is it, is it down south? Wh- where is he going? He says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? So what is he saying? He's like, you're saying you're going somewhere, and you're saying we know the way, but I don't know where you're going, therefore we don't know the way, right? So it would be like me saying, hey, meet me at the restaurant this afternoon. What would you say? Which restaurant, right? And I'd say, well, you know the way. You know the way, right? And you're like, we don't know the way because we don't know where you're going, right? That's, that's kind of the conversation that's going on here. Jesus is saying, I'm going to heaven, and you know the way. You know the path. And, and I love Thomas here, right? He's just forthright. He's like, we don't know where you're going, right? If we don't know the destination, how can we know the path to get to the destination, right? We don't know. To which Jesus responds, and I love it. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the what? I am the way, right? I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father except by me. I love it. He says, "Listen, you don't need you don't need MapQuest, right? You don't need a GPS. You don't need a the old-fashioned map that you fold up and put in your car. If you want to know the way to heaven, then it's not about a path or a direction, it's about what? It's about a person, right? It's about knowing a person." It's about knowing the person who is going back to heaven, who came down from heaven, and after his death and resurrection for our sins, was going back to heaven. And if you want to be with him there, it's not about the way, it's about the person. He says, listen, I am the way. If you want to go to heaven, you don't need a map. You need, you need me, right? You need to know me. And Jesus is affirming to his disciples here, and you do. You know me, right? You know me personally. So I want to ask you a question. Do you know the way? Do you know the way to heaven? Do you know for, for, for certain, with assurance, that, that you'll be there? Do you know how to get there? If you know Jesus personally, then you do. I'm reminded of, uh, of an experience many years past. Many of you, if you, know, if, you know, if you know me pretty well, you know that I'm kind of directionally challenged. And so you know that uh, I get turned around pretty easily, and I get confused. And uh, I, when I was in college, I would... And of course, I went, to, I went to a pretty big school, big campus, and I remember my, my freshman year going to my first ca- class, and I, I walked to the building a particular way, and I went in a particular door, and I went out the other door, and I went out the other side of the building, and I was utterly lost. <laughs> I was like, where am I? You know, That's just kind of how I am. I get lost, and so I like GPS. It's a great invention. Uh, but before GPS was invented, uh, I was dating Shelly, and uh, we were in seminary, and I had not met her parents before. And her parents were in in Dallas. They came into town, uh, I believe, for a youth event. They were volunteering with the youth group. And uh, the youth group that they were volunteering with uh, were going to a restaurant called, called Medieval Times. I don't know if you've ever heard of Medieval Times or been to Medieval Times. This is the only time I've ever been because it's really expensive. But it's a pretty cool restaurant. They essentially joust and do horse fights, and it's all staged. But it's really cool. It's in this huge arena, and you get to eat with your hands without... Forks and spoons, it was really cool. Um, and so the youth group said, hey, you know what, why don't you and Shelly come and meet us there? The youth pastor was Shelly's friend. He's like, we've got extra tickets, just come. And I'm like, cool, you know. And I had not met Shelly's parents yet. So I'm with Shelly, and I'm with her sister, and I had picked them up, and I don't exactly remember why. But I had I picked them up, and we were going to meet them at the restaurant. And uh, I remember driving and and saying, oh, yeah, so I'm a little nervous, right? I'm going to meet the parents for the first time, a little little anxious, right? I want to put on a good face. And so they say, we're going to medieval times. And I was like, I know where that is, right? Here I am playing the... I know the way, direction, kind of a guy, and I'm not that guy. But I'm like, I know the way, right? I know the exit. And, you know this is where we are. Uh, you take 35 south, and this is the exit. And so I was very confident, right? I was like, OK, I know the way. I hop in my car, so I'm driving. I know the exact address, as I think, my, my infamous words. I know the exact address. I know the way, and we're going and we're talking, and, and I'm looking. Is that the exit? I don't know. I, you know and I get, I get lost. And long story short, we get lost. I take the wrong exit. We end up in downtown Dallas, which is kind of confusing because it's one-way streets. And if you've ever been on a city where it's one-way streets, it's hard to kind of get back to where you're going. So about an hour later, we find where we're going. And uh, I'm pretty f- nervous at that point, and I meet the parents, and it's all good. We got married. Life is good. But, um, <laughs> but I-, I think I live in infamy now for saying, I know the exact address, <laughs> I know the way, and we're an hour late to meet the parents, right? I was so sure, and I was. I wasn't just playing. I thought I knew the way. I thought I knew the exit. I thought I knew the direction, right? But I didn't. I, I missed it. I-, I-, I was so sure, but I missed it. And my fear for, for those of us who come here week to week, my fear for those of us in our community is that, is that we're like that. We think we know the way. We think we know the exact address. We think we know the way to heaven, but, but we really don't. We think that it's through our morality, through our good deeds. We think it's because we go to church every Sunday. We think it's because we're involved. We think it's because we're, we're good people. We're better than the average Joe. We're, just a, we're good people, and we think we know the way. We think we're going to be there, but we don't. (laughs) Because we don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the way. Jesus says, I am the way. It's not not about any of that. It's about knowing me personally. So I want to ask, do you know the way? Do you know Jesus personally? If you don't, we're going to to pray, and we'll give you an opportunity to do that. So thus far, we've seen that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is our hope in death. We've seen that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. He is our certainty of heaven. But finally, Jesus is the true vine. So turn with me just one chapter to John chapter 15. So if you move ahead just one chapter to John chapter 15, we're going to take a look at verses 1 through 6 there as well. There in John chapter 15, we move away from the, from the conversation about death and about heaven, and Jesus gives us a very practical image for the here and now as we live our life as Christian people wanting to follow God, wanting to, to, to obey God, wanting to know Jesus, wanting to become new people. What does Jesus offer us? Well, there he says, I am the true vine. That is, he is our power to produce. He is the power to produce goodness and life change and spiritual fruit and holiness and obedience that he is the power to produce. So in this final I am, Jesus introduces uh, an image that uh, I'm not all that familiar with. And and maybe you are. Uh, I'm not all that familiar with it. But he, he uses an image of the grapevine. So maybe... They're on your, in, your, in your farms or on your homes. Maybe you have grapes. I don't have any experience with grapes other than buying them, them buying them in the grocery store. Okay? So if you were to ask me where grapes come from, I would say, well, they come from the grocery store. That's where I get them, right? I don't, know, I don't know much about where they come from. But he uses this image of the grapevine. And he uses the image of a grapevine in its shoots, the shoots that stem from that grapevine to show us that Our power to produce anything good, to produce spiritual fruit in our lives, comes from our relationship with him. It comes from knowing him. So let's read that image in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. So he's introducing this image. I am the true vine. So notice the image. He is the vine, and who's the gardener? The vine keeper, if you will. Who is it? It's God the Father, right? So the the Father is the gardener. Verse 2. He, referring to the the Father, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he what? He prunes, right? He prunes it for what purpose? So that it will be even more fruitful. Verse 3. You, speaking to the eleven, you are already clean because because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, your translation may say abide, Remain in me as I also remain in you. Now notice this. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Verse 5. I am the vine. I'm the vine. You are the branches. If you remain or abide in me and I in you, what? You will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do uh, most things. Is that what it says? Okay, I know. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Wow. Verse 6. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and they are burned. He continues on, but we're going to stop there. So in the analogy... Let's let's kind of put it together here. Jesus is the vine. So picture the the vine, right? And that represents Jesus. Who then are the branches? Well, there are really two types of branches in this image. Uh, One commentator, I I think he explains it helpfully, so I'm going to quote him. He says this. uh, He says, Every year in Palestine, uh, gardeners prune their vines. They cut off the dead wood, which has no life in it, and trim the living branches so that their yield will be greater. So, Okay, where are we? Jesus is the vine. Genuine believers are the shoots or the branches that are producing the fruit. That is, they are connected to the vine and they are alive. They have life in them, right? But that's not the only kind of shoot or branch that Jesus talks about, right? There's a, there's a shoot or a branch in this analogy that Jesus talks about that doesn't produce any fruit, right? And so what does the vine dresser, what does the gardener do, He cuts them off, and in verse 6 we see that he throws them in the pile uh, to be burned because they're useless. You can't use them for anything practical. It's, it's, It's just dead old wood. And so that, I believe, is talking about professing believers who are not really believers. There is no spiritual life in them. They are attached to Jesus in a sense, in name only, but there's no fruit. They don't produce anything. They're not connected to the vine from which is life and spiritual vitality. Jesus here, which is what I want to focus on, Jesus makes it very clear that just as a branch is dependent on its connection to the vine to produce fruit, so we are very dependent on our relationship with him, our connection with him to produce anything good, right? To give us any life change, to do anything that is eternal or supernatural in value. There's an old pithy saying and I like it because it's true. It says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done through Christ will, will last, right? That's what, that's what Jesus is saying. And so as we live our life as Christians, I often ask myself, am I bearing the fruit that God wants me to bear? I look at my character. I look at how I respond to difficult times. I look at how I respond to people. And, and, I, and from time to time, I think it's helpful to say, am I, am I producing the kind of fruit that God wants me to and, and if not, I, I believe I'm a, I'm a genuine believer and I'm, I'm connected to the vine, then what does this passage say that God might do? He might prune us. Now, I don't know about you, I've never been pruned before, but I would imagine it's rather unpleasant, right? It, might, it hurts a little bit, right? Um, here, Jesus is saying, listen, if, if you're a genuine believer, God may... may Do something that might be a little painful in your life because he wants you to produce more fruit. He wants to build character through you. And Jesus says, those who don't are are not real. Now notice exactly what has happened before this. Judas has left them, right? Judas has left them. He was not clean. Jesus uses the image here. He says, you guys are clean. But before, he had said, Judas was not clean. These are genuine Christians that he's talking to. He's saying, Abide in me. Abide in my relationship with you, and you'll bear fruit. So I'm going to ask you a question. How does life change happen for the Christian? How do we grow in our faith? I mean, how do we produce the kind of character that the God wants in us? I think oftentimes we default, and, and rightly so to some degree, but we default to methods and mechanisms, right? So, uh, for instance, I, personally... I would like to be a lot more patient with my kids. There we go. I would like to be more patient. I find myself being impatient. And I'm like, God, that's not what I, I don't want to be that. I want to be patient with them, right? I want to respond better to them. This, and I I need you to do that. So, so how, how do we do that? Should I just pull up my britches and do it better next time, right? Should I just try a little harder? Should I just kind of grit my teeth and say, oh, next time, next time, I'm going to get it right. Does that work? Let me ask you, does that work for you? And the answer is what? No, it do- doesn't work, right? If we just try harder, right? And, and Jesus says, listen, you can't do anything apart from me. So how do we, how do we grow? There are mechanisms. There are methods. We study our Bible. We, we pray, right? We're involved in the, in the life of the community. We serve. We give. We fast, right? There are things that we can do to, to draw near to Jesus. But, but hear this. The key to bearing fruit is not in the doing, but in the pursuing. The key to bearing fruit as a Christian is not in the doing, but in the pursuing of Christ. And as we pursue Christ, we use all sorts of avenues, right? But the avenues are not the end-all, be-all, right? We don't read our Bible just to read our Bible. We read our Bible because we want to remain connected to the vine, right? And so the more we pursue Jesus in a real, true love relationship through myriads of avenues, then we produce Character so that the next time my kid does something and I'm, I'm I naturally would be like right instead of being I, I find myself patient because I'm pursuing Jesus and He's growing and developing character in me and so Jesus is the true vine He is our power to produce and so uh, we're going to close our service by singing a song and so here in a few minutes uh, me minutes me and the worship team we're going to get up and we're going to sing. Uh, the song by Matt Mayer. We've just heard it, Lord, I Need You. Hopefully you have it in your head. But in doing so, I hope that we confess our desperate need for Jesus. We need Jesus to be the bread of life. We need him to show us our lasting need for satisfaction. We need for him to be the light of the world, to illuminate us so we repent from sin and self and rebellion and we turn to him. We need for him to be the gate so that we can get into the sheepfold and to be the people of God. We need him to be our good shepherd, to lead us and to love us and to know us and to die for us so that we can become part of the church, the people of God. We need Jesus to be the resurrection and the life so that when we face death or our loved ones do, we can have hope. We need Jesus to be the way and the truth and the life so that we can be certain that we will be with him in heaven. And we need Jesus to be the true vine. We need him to be the power to produce spiritual fruit and life change. So I'm going to ask Dan, one of our elders, to come. He's going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing this song as a confession of our deep need for God, in particular as we face the new year. How do you do, how do you become the person God wants you to be? We abide in Christ and we need him so much. Dan, let's pray.